Amen. Acts chapter 9, page 1264 in the Pew Bible in front of you. So if you're here visiting with us, boy, we're glad you're here. Thanks for coming and uh, spending some time with us. We are always excited when somebody comes to be with our family. We're studying through the book of Acts. We're talking about the unfinished work. As the early church grows. All right, let's pray and ask God to help us. Let's pray. Father, we come before you on this day, Lord, when we think about you setting your face like a flint to Jerusalem. As people, as men and women, waved palm branches. Lord, and tears streamed down your cheek as you thought of the blindness of the people who, if only they had known what was right before them. And yet, Lord, nothing would stop you from the greatest act of love ever displayed. And so we are grateful that in the power and the authority of the one who gave himself for mankind. We have your word before us and we thank you. Help us, Lord, to hear from you. To be open to what you desire to do today. Thank you for each one who's here. Thank you that there's no accidents, no happenstance, but by your sovereign purpose, we're here together at this time before this text, at this very moment in each of our individual lives. So will you now do what only you can do? Grant us ears to hear, we pray in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen. Amen. So there's a lot of dangers that are Presenting themselves to the church. There's a lot of dangers around the church. You know, we've talked through the, this study of Acts a lot about um, the, the troubles that evangelical Christianity is in these days. And the struggles that uh, many churches and places are uh, who are... In buildings that maybe look like this, filled with people that maybe are similar to us. I was so encouraged this week. There's a, uh, a, a very extensive study that was just done uh, by Harvard, actually. And uh, they were attempting to do research on a number of levels. But in the course of doing the research, they were studying religion and the way people respond to religion. And the, the research came out and it... Uh, showed that what we already know, that most uh, evangelical churches are in decline. And then it said that there's a, there's a small percentage of churches that are thriving and growing. And when they looked into that small percentage to try to figure out what it was about them, what they found was is that those were churches that were filled with people who had determined that if they were going to come to church, they were going to study and hear 
and praise the Lord through his word as it's intended to be studied and heard. People who are devoted to the scripture. That where the scripture is being preached rightly and wholly, people are thriving. Now, that encouraged me. It's not like I didn't know that. But it encouraged me just to hear public record acknowledging what we already know. But when you think about so many things, you know, so, so many things going on within the, the global church, and uh, especially in the Western church, I think that um, the struggle that the church faces oftentimes uh, is, is something that comes out corporately in people, but really it's, it's something that's more private. It begins in our, with our mindset, in our own hearts and our understanding. It's a personal maybe position or conviction that people oftentimes take. And it, uh, as I see, wreaks havoc in the church. And so if you have your uh, listening guide, one of the biggest dangers of the church today is that the church is buying into what I call a mentality of impossibility. So there's a lot of people within the church that profess to believe in Jesus and profess to believe the Bible, the one in which you have in your hand, and yet there's a lot of limitations on what God can and can't do. There's a lot of uh, unbelief. There's a lot of things that seem too hard or too uh, impossible or too many people have abandoned... uh, a biblical worldview for maybe a Fox News worldview. That the sky is falling. The sky is falling. Well, I'm here to tell you the sky is not falling. And if it is falling, it's because God wants it to fall. And what happens when we adopt this mentality of impossibility, we, it weakens and cripples our faith because it undermines the very foundation of the scripture. And so when we look at the book of Acts, nowhere is it, I mean, it's, it's such a, uh, an obvious reality that God is not dead. He's not weakened. He's not apathetic or disconnected. He's not silent or uninterested, but he is involved and he is able and he is willing. And if we allow him to in our lives he'll turn everything upside down and about the time you think you got it figured out in the book of acts you're reminded yet again that the bible actually indeed means what it says when it says in ephesians chapter 3 now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above that which we can ask or think according to the power that works in us. And that power is the spirit of God that's within us. And so he's a God who is full of surprises. And who loves to turn the tables on impossible situations. And loves when people pray big, audacious prayers and believe that the Bible is true no matter how overwhelming the odds of society or culture may seem. So, I want us to talk a little bit about a position of intentionality this morning. What happens when we position ourselves 
to be intentional, then what does that position lead to? Look in Acts chapter 9, beginning in verse 32. Remember, Saul, Paul, has been taken off to Tarsus, and now we swing back, and the focus will now remain for the next uh, month or so on Peter. Acts chapter 9, verse 32. Now it came to pass, as Peter went through all the parts of the country, that he also came down to the saints who dwell in Lydda. There he found a certain man named Aeneas, who had been bedridden eight years and was paralyzed. And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus the Christ heals you. Arise and make your bed. Then he arose immediately. So all who dwelt in Lydia and Sharon saw him and turned to the Lord. Now, just look at the previous passage, verse 31. Remember where we left off last week? That the church was in a, a momentary season of peace. There's been all sorts of persecution. Verse 31 says that people were operating in the fear of the Lord, and there was peace, and the church was multiplying, right? So what is happening as there's a reprieve momentary reprieve and all the persecution that has people scattered about fearing for their lives what is happening well peter is on the move he's not taking a rest he's not taking a nap he's not he he didn't well you know we got a moment of peace you know let's why don't we regroup why don't we catch our breath why don't we you know lay low for a while and take this opportunity to relax. He's not sitting idle. He's on the move. I thought it was interesting that when John prayed this morning before the offering, didn't you think that was strange? Have you ever heard anybody pray, God, will you help us to keep moving? And I thought, hey, that's my first point. As he came to pass, Peter went through all the parts of the country that he also came down to the saints who dwelt in Lydda. So he was on the move. He had positioned himself to be intentional. So here's what we see. In the kingdom of God, opportunity comes to those who are involved in what God is doing. In other words, God uses people who are engaged in what God is doing. That's what he does. You know, oftentimes, I'll talk to people, and they'll, you know, sort of talk about the fact that they they wish that they were involved in more exciting things, or that God was using them in more exciting ways, or that they were, you know, had a, a more active role in the work of the kingdom, or something to that effect. And yet, how would would one go about doing that? Not by sitting around twiddling your thumbs, waiting for that to fall out of the sky. You see, because when you're faithful in small things, God puts you over much. Isn't that how that works? Yes. And so what you see is Peter is on the move, and he's on the move all over the place. And so... 
we get to read this amazing story about this unbelievable opportunity that God placed before him. But I just want you to not overlook the fact that the reason Peter is in this position is because he's moving. You know, it's a lot easier to lead someone who's moving than it is to try to lead. You ever try to lead somebody who's stationary? It doesn't work real good. God doesn't use the fixed. He uses the faithful. The faithful. He doesn't choose the stagnant. He loves to use the stirred. He loves people who are moving, who are intentionally positioning themselves to be used by God. So therefore, verse 33, there he found a certain man named Aeneas. Now, this man had been bedridden for eight years and was paralyzed. Now, we don't know what the story is. We don't know what happened to him. We don't know if eight years ago he was trying to jaywalk across Highway 49 at uh, 5 o'clock on Friday. That would probably get you paralyzed for eight years. We don't know exactly what happened. We just know the amount of time and what the result of the injury or whatever it is that happened to him is. And, you know, if you think about, I mean, how horrible it would be to be paralyzed for eight years, which would be horrible for anybody. Then you think about being paralyzed here in the first century. And, and where Aeneas lives, I mean, he's out in some podunk nowhere. I mean, it's, it's basically a death sentence. I mean, there, there is no disability act or handicapped parking places or, you know, access ramps or wheelchairs or any. There's nothing like that. I mean, you talk about somebody who is in an utterly dependent and discouraged situation. That would be in this for eight years. Now, you can use your own imagination as to the things, the thoughts that went through his mind over the course of those eight years. The hopes that he, he would maybe have good days and bad days, his his uh, psyche, his hopes would go, no doubt, up and down and up and down. And probably after some time, depending on his personality makeup, uh, he finally began to think, well, this is probably what I'm relegated to the rest of my life. I don't know, but I know it had to be bad. The Bible says that Peter comes to him. So as Peter is busy, as he's positioned himself, being intentional about what God has going on, Peter crosses paths with Aeneas. And here's what he says. He says, Aeneas, he calls him by name. Jesus Christ heals you. Arise and make your bed. Now there is a man who is the happiest man in all of human history to make his bed. For eight years, something as simple as making your bed was probably something that he laid there and thought about how many times he had taken that for granted and how just simple things, when you're unable to do it, could mean so much. Just being able to make your bed. So I think maybe for me and you, 
Well, not for me. For some of you, what you should do is you should not complain anymore about making your bed. It's just an opportunity for me to say to you, you know what? The next time you have to make your bed, just be thankful that you can. Amen? Just be thankful that you can. And if you don't make your bed, well, shame on you. You need to make your bed. Now, I don't make the bed. Just a moment of clarity. But that's because I'm never the last one in the bed. See? You know, it's, it all works together. Eventually, I probably won't even be able to sleep in the bed tonight. I'll be making the couch. So, Look at the result. Immediately, he arrives, verse 35. But all who dwelt in Lydda and Sharon saw him and turned to the Lord. Now, what I want you to see is God does this singular act of deliverance. But look at the far-reaching effects that this one singular act has. You see, there's really two miracles that happen in these few verses. Miracle number one is God heals a man. Miracle number two is God saves a whole town. You see that? And so what you, what you need to understand from this is that we're oftentimes concerned about what God, what's happening to us. But God, on the other hand, is concerned about what's happening through us. See, we normally have a very short-sighted and greatly simplified view of what's going on instead of trying to see things from the perspective of God. God, it's not that Aeneas wasn't important to God. That's clear. But God has a bigger purpose through Aeneas and through Peter and through what those who are positioning themselves to be intentional in the kingdom, what they ultimately are able to see happen through the power of God. And that's the way God has always been and always worked. Such that he works in one person just like he worked in me and worked in you. And then he uses us to reach other people. That he's doing something in us for a bigger purpose. And the bigger purpose is what he wants to do through us. And so here he uses Peter to heal a man who was paralyzed, which brings up a, a conversation that we ought to have because there's a lot of confusion about healing today. And so we should just set the record straight. Jesus can heal today, this morning, anytime he wants to. And Jesus does heal. But that's really not the question. The question, if we were asking the question in light of a lot of the things that we see going on in the periphery of maybe religion and so-called Christianity, the question would not be, does Jesus heal or can Jesus heal? But it would be, can we make him heal? Because when it comes to a conversation about healing, really the way to sort of separate the false teachers from reality is 
all hinges on can we make him healed. You see, whenever you see healing in the Bible, it's always instant and it's always complete. Always. You think about the healings that we've seen in Scripture where a man with a withered hand, his withered hand who is shriveled up and unusable, instantly it's restored like new. Or a person born blind, instantly they can see. Or even in the garden, coming up not too many days after today as we move into Easter next week, where a man gets his ear chopped off, and then suddenly the ear is put back on, and it's as if it was never chopped off. I mean, it's fully functioning. It's not, you know, it's not like super glued on there. Like, it's there, working, functioning, as if it never happened. That's the, the healing that we see in Scripture. But that's not the healing that we see on the television, is it? No. No, we see these so-called faith healers. And they heal people of arthritis. Like they used to hurt really bad and now they hurt less. Or they heal somebody who was having trouble walking and now they can walk better. Or they heal somebody who's had chronic headaches and now they don't have headaches. Now, it's not that God doesn't heal in that way. It's just interesting to me that they never heal the way we see in the Bible. Ever. And you know, it's very simple because whenever somebody says, well, I'm going to go to a healing service. I always lean in like, this is going to be fun. And I go, okay, tell me about the healing service. Well, I'm going to go and I'm going to ask God to heal me. And I said, so who, who's running the healing service? And it'd be some fruitcakes running the healing service. And so... I would say, so this person has the ability to heal. Oh, yeah. And so, but, but they're, not, they're not up in the pediatric cancer ward in Memorial, are they? No, they're not there. They're not, they don't go to where all the infirmed people are. They only work with the people who can come to them. What about, what about Aeneas? Aeneas can't come. He can't move. God goes to him. See, in the Scripture, we see clear, dramatic, undeniable, instantaneous, complete healing. That doesn't mean that's the only way God does it. That's just what we see. We don't see, you know, my kidney started working because Benny Hinn popped me in the forehead. <laughs> You've never seen that. So the question we have to ask ourselves when we are in the book of Acts, like we are, we have to say, now, when we're reading the book of Acts, is a text like this about Aeneas being healed, is this a descriptive text or is this a prescriptive text? Is the Bible describing something that happened or is it prescribing something that we as the church ought to be doing? That's what you have to ask yourself. Now, whenever I have a conversation with somebody about the difference between descriptive and prescriptive text, at first they try to act like they don't know what I'm talking about. But they really do because I say, well, so for example, 
Noah's Ark. Is that descriptive or prescriptive? See, you never heard of anybody going, we're just praying that we're going to build an ark. You never, nobody does that. Somehow everybody knows that Noah's Ark was a one-time deal, right? You, you haven't, I've never met a person who was just standing out there on the beach Right in the middle of spring break, just staring off into the water. You go down there and you're like, are you okay? What's going on? I'm, I'm just, and they got their hands up and they're just praying God's going to part the ocean so they can walk to Cuba. Somehow, crossing the Red Sea, we just, well, that was a one-time deal. God calls Abraham by faith. That's not a one-time deal. We still see people being called today the same way, right? So that makes sense. We, we read in the Old Testament how God used the struggle of dealing with Saul in David's life to, to refine and grow David's faith. Well, that's not a one-time thing because that's what God does in our lives. So there's a lot of things that are very clear. But boy, when we get to these big outlandish things, somehow it, it starts to get a little muddy. So you have to ask yourself, what is the intent of the book of Acts when the Holy Spirit inspires Luke to pen these words, to put all of the things that are in the book of Acts in the book of Acts? What is the intent of it? And if you, we've been studying through it, so here's what we all know. The book of Acts is not prescribing a specific model for how to do church. You know why? Because there's nothing about that. Do you notice that the book of Acts doesn't tell us how to conduct a church service? Doesn't tell us how to do baptism? Doesn't tell us how we ought to do a uh, Lord's Supper service? It doesn't tell us how to do church. So if it's not prescribing the way we ought to do church, then we ought to take that into consideration when we're reading it, and we ought to understand when we're reading that there's no structure being laid out for the Lord's Day. There's no method of administrating laid out in the book of Acts. Very little information about that, if any. But what there is is this triumphant, joyful, amazing, wonderful, forward-moving expansion of the gospel across the face of the earth, empowered by the Holy Spirit, utilized through the people of God in this amazing and wonderful... Now, that we see clear as a bell as the church continues to grow, as the kingdom continues to advance, and as God continues to use people to do that. Now, that we see... I think Luke's purpose for us in Acts, and which just means God's purpose, is to describe for us how in the world we got to where we are. I mean, how did God blow the church up all over the world? Well, he did that in very amazing, apostolic, supernatural ways. And all of that ought to encourage us as the ongoing church, as the unfinished work of the book of Acts continues on, it ought to encourage us to continue to proclaim the good news to the entire world. 
not by modeling specific examples, but by doing the things that the Scripture calls us to do. Let me me just show you a couple texts. Ephesians chapter 2. This will come up on the screen. Now, therefore, Paul says, You are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Right? Amen. Next verse. Having been built on... What? Having been built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. Now I want to ask you a question. How many foundations does a building have? How many chief cornerstones does a building have? Only one. You see, it's not apostles. It's the apostles. It's one foundation. It's one chief cornerstone. Now, the word apostle, it means sent one. Do we have people today that have apostolic giftings? Of course. Pastor Rod has apostolic giftings as we send him to go and plant a new church. But is he an apostle? No. Because that foundation is past. The apostolic window is obviously closed. See, because if you ask yourself, can we make him heal? Now, remember... Who, who wrote that? Paul wrote that. Think about what we know about Paul and what we know about Peter. We're going to come up on some text pretty soon where people were amazed and thinking that even if their shadow went across them, it would heal them, right? So these are guys who experienced some unbelievable, amazing things. But can we make God heal? Can we make him heal? Can we just put up, can we orchestrate an event to where God is compelled to, to or forced into? Can we force that? Can we make that? Can we manipulate or manage that? Well, I mean, the Bible answers the question. Philippians chapter 2. Paul says, Yet I considered it necessary to send you Epaphroditus. You know who that was? That was Paul's bro. That was his buddy. That was his co-laborer man they were they were the closest of friends his fellow soldier but your messenger and the two who ministered to my need since he was longing for you and was distressed because you had heard that he was sick for indeed he was sick almost unto death but God had mercy on him it's the same Paul how come he didn't heal him how come he didn't heal his friend You don't think he wanted to heal his friend? Of course he wanted to heal his friend. But guess what? You can't force God to do anything. That's not up to him. And what you find is as time goes on, as you move towards the end of Paul's ministry, what you find is more and more of these instances where Paul is unable to heal. It's not like it was once was. Things have changed. You get to 2 Timothy at the end of Paul's ministry. He says, Greek Priscilla and Aquila. And he starts going through the household of Anesiphorus. Erastus stayed in Corinth. But Trophimus, his buddy Trophimus, I left in Miletus sick. Why'd you leave him sick, Paul? Because I can't do that. That's God's work. That's not my work. Does God still heal? Yes. But let me tell you what God doesn't do. God doesn't 
get pushed in a corner by somebody who is orchestrating a healing. Because we see time and time again in Scripture where the very people who had the apostolic gift of healing couldn't heal. Paul's begging God to remove this thorn from his flesh. Why didn't he just heal himself? Yes, God heals. But here's what we have to understand about the way God heals. First of all, we have to understand the character and nature of the God who heals. And Isaiah 55 tells us that his thoughts are not our thoughts and his ways are not our ways, right? We just need to understand that when we're, we're talking about God, we're talking about somebody who's different than we are, on a whole nother level than we are. And so we know things that he wants us to know, but we don't by any stretch of any imagination know everything we could know because we can't do that. We can't handle it. Deuteronomy 29 says the secret things belong to the Lord, right? But those things that are revealed belong to us. And so we have to exist in what's revealed. So here's what I think we should do. We should ask a different question. With regards to, because I know some of you are listening very intently because right now you're praying that God's going to heal you. And you're not sure if you're encouraged or discouraged right now. Well, let me help you. Instead of asking, Lord, why are you allowing me to suffer? Which is not a wrong question. I just don't think it's the best question. We should ask, how is my suffering allowing others to see the Lord? Because remember the principle we see not only in this text but throughout Scripture. That what God does in one, He desires to use in the life of many. Right? And so we should ask the question, now how is this suffering that I'm going through allowing others to see you, Lord? And here's what's interesting. If you just, if you just follow... Paul and his incredible gift of healing and, the, and how that moves through the course of his ministry because we have so much from him. We find that he ends up in places where he's unable to heal his friends. He's unable to heal himself. But what? But what about the ministry of proclaiming the gospel? Do you ever hear Paul say, I'm unable to, to preach the gospel? L listen, to, listen to what the apostle says at the end of his ministry. The very, very end. After he's left friends sick and in near-death situation. Who his, his son, Timothy, he's even said, I know you got problems. And you're, you know, you're, you're, your stomach's always upset and wound up. But look at what he says, 2 Timothy chapter 4. But the Lord stood with me and strengthened me so that the message might be preached fully through me. Now, I might not have been able to get rid of the thorn in the flesh. I might not have been able to do, but the message was preached fully through me and that all the Gentiles might hear. Also, I was delivered out of the mouth of the lion. And the Lord will deliver me from every evil work and preserve me for his heavenly kingdom. To him be glory Forever and ever. Amen. You see that? You see God's perfect priority played out right there in the Apostle Paul's life. That listen. 
It's not that, that what you and I go through is insignificant. That is not what the Bible's teaching us this morning at all. But what the Bible is teaching us is that God sees things in a much bigger, broader way than me and you can. And that it, I, I want you to pray for healing. And I pray for your healing and I pray for my own healing. And I continually, continually am praying for someone's healing. But also with the understanding that I can't make God do anything. I will oftentimes not understand the scope of what God is doing. But I know this. Satan can't stop me from spreading his message. See? That's what Paul says. You know, people will pack into buildings and give people a bunch of money trying to seek a healing. But nobody's packing in a building to be gifted with the boldness to share the gospel with the people around them. Because if, if you want to see a miracle, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to lean on curtain number two. I'm, I'm going to say that's about 10 million times more likely. Because it's God's agenda. Look at what, that's what Paul says. So let's do this. Let's pause right now. Why don't you bow your heads and close your eyes? And let's just pray together. Father, I want to pray right now for everybody in this room who has been pleading with you for healing. Lord, I don't know all of the circumstances and all the situations that are represented here. God, but what I do know is that when we hurt physically, we hurt. When there are things wrong with us, Lord, it is extraordinarily difficult to overcome. When someone whom we love deeply is suffering, God, it's so hard. And Lord, I know that the voice oftentimes in our heads tells us that we're hurting as punishment from God. Lord, I know that the flesh wants us to believe that the reason that we have not found healing is because we don't deserve it or because you're displeased with us in some way. And Lord, I pray that you would erase that lie from the hearts and minds of your people. Lord, I pray that we would be able to see this morning the truth of what you do say. That you are with your children in their suffering. And that oftentimes what you say in Scripture is that you are nearer to us in our suffering than at any other time. That you draw near to the brokenhearted. And Lord, that my brothers and sisters in this room who suffer right now, dear God, I pray. I pray that you'd heal them, Lord, right now. We know you can. We know you can. 
But Lord, whatever happens, I pray that we'll embrace and be joyful in the fact that you're with us. You're with us. And that every time our nerve endings begin to scream or our health begins to waver, Lord, we can rejoice that you're there in the midst of it. And may we always be a people who reject a mindset of impossibility. And that we recognize, Lord, that you are the God of the impossible. But that you don't do it the way we say you ought to or make up that you ought to. Lord, it's according to your sovereign, perfect will. And you always know best. And so we, we want you to know that we trust you. Help us to love those around us who suffer well for your glory. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Verse 36. At Joppa. So if you looked at a map, you would see that Peter has left Jerusalem. And he's headed to the coastline. He's moving to the east. And in between Joppa and Jerusalem is uh, where Aeneas has been encountered. So now he's back on the road, moving. And there at Joppa on the seashore, there was a certain disciple named Tabitha, which was translated Dorcas. Now, anybody here named Tabitha? I don't think I know any Tabithas here. Well, it's a beautiful name if your name's Tabitha. Amen. Praise the Lord. But here's the thing. We know why you don't go by the other name. Right? Nobody's, nobody's writing Dorcas on there. Uh-uh. That's tough. I'm just saying. So this woman, so look at this woman. She was full of good works and charitable deeds, which she did. But it happened in those days that she became sick and died. And when they washed her, they laid her in an upper room. And since Lydda was near Joppa, and the disciples had heard that Peter was there, they sent men to him, imploring him not to delay in coming to them. But Peter arose and went to them. And when he had come, they brought him to the upper room. And all the widows stood by him weeping, showing the tunics and the garments which Dorcas had made while she was with them. But Peter put them all out, and he knelt down and he prayed. And turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes. And when she saw Peter, she sat up. And then he gave her his hand and lifted her up. And when he had called the saints and the widows, he presented her alive. Now look at what happened, verse 32. And it became known throughout all of Joppa. And many believed on the Lord. You see the principle again? So it was that he stayed many days in Joppa with Simon a tanner. Now, it's interesting to me that in the realm of the faith healing movement, their theology teaches that a woman like Tabitha would never get sick or die, right? Because what we have here before us is a woman of exemplary faith, right? And the teaching that says that 
Well, if you get sick, it's because you lack faith. You don't believe enough. And yet here is this amazing godly woman who is full of good works and generous with what she has and is being used greatly by God in ministry to affect other people, and yet she becomes sick and dies. Don't you just want to scream sometimes, you know, when you see things going around you like, just read the Bible. Just read the Bible. It's so simple. So here's what the Scripture's telling us right now. It's telling us in Christ, hope doesn't end when life does, right? Well, no, clearly not. So here's somebody who is amazing and doing everything she should do. And yet she gets sick and dies. And yet, no doubt, the world is filled with people that would be scratching their head and thinking, well, I just don't understand why that happened. I just don't understand what's going on. I mean, here's this person that's doing what they ought to be doing. And, you know, they're, 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 they're faithful. And, they're, they, and, and what we're saying when we say that is that if you're faithful, something bad won't happen to you, which is unbiblical. So don't say that. Because it, it really makes you seem weird. Have you ever thought when somebody says that, when I meet somebody who believes that your physical health is a reflection of your faith or trust in God, I mean, it's so mind-boggling, and I just scratch my head and go, so explain the cross to me. Jesus was somehow deficient and therefore had to suffer and die. Oh, no, he's exempt from that. Oh, okay. And all the apostles. Well, I mean... Where does it end? Why don't we end it in Scripture? Why don't we do that? Wouldn't that be good? Okay, let's do that. How about Isaiah 57? Here's a good verse for you. The Bible says the righteous perish, and no one takes it to heart. Merciful men are taken away, and yet no one considers that the righteous is taken away from evil. See, God's telling you what he does, and he's telling us what we do. He's saying, here's what happens. Bad things happen to good people, and everyone's running around scratching their head with some whacked-out theology and, and not considering that the righteous, look at the words, the righteous, God has taken the righteous away from evil. Verse 2, because he shall enter into peace. You see, what the Bible's saying is that God is rewarding, God is rewarding people by taking them out of this world. That they hit the jackpot. And we got all these people running around scratching their head trying to figure out what they what they do wrong. What's the and the whole time, what you've seen illustrated before you is that it's impossible to please God without faith. Isn't that what the Bible says? But he's the rewarder of those who diligently seek him. And what's a better reward than heaven? There is no better reward than heaven. So, the reason that Jesus 
brings Tabitha back from the dead is what? Because it, think about it. It always, God, God has a perfect plan, a perfect, I mean, I don't know how this works with Tabitha, trust me. Well, you know, there's been a million conversations about it. It's ridiculous because nobody knows. I don't know. The, I don't know all that. All I know is Tabitha, Lazarus, and anybody else, the, the uh, widow's son, and Elijah. I mean, anybody who, who was dead and then becomes alive, apart from Jesus, that's got to be a major bummer. I mean, it's got to be a bummer. It's not like they're coming back going, whoo, man, I'm so glad to see you. Boy, that paradise, it was getting old. Now, let's just understand something. Tabitha has not been resurrected. She's been revived. And there's a difference. Because when you're resurrected... You don't come back in the same raggedy, broke-down body that you had before, and then you don't die again and do it again. That's not resurrection, right? Resurrection is a whole different ballgame. Resurrection is you were dead, and now you're alive forevermore in perfection, right? Okay, so she wasn't resurrected. She was revived. But still, nonetheless, again, I don't know how all this works. All I know is the Bible says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. So I don't know if there was some special exemption for them or not. I don't know. The Bible doesn't tell us what her mood was. I'm just saying, if I die, you better not pray that I come back. <laughs> don't you dare pray that I come back. Because if I do, it's not going to be pretty. So Jesus brings her back from the dead to show everyone around and us here today through this passage what the future holds. That's what the whole point of this is. That's what the whole point is. See, you remember in Luke chapter 10, Jesus sends the disciples out and he gives them power and they go out. And when he gives them power and sends them out, you know, they're kind of excited, but they don't really know until they get out there what's going to happen, what the power is going to be like, right? But then they go out there and they minister in, in the power that Jesus gives them. And remember what happens? They come back and they say, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. Like they start casting out demons and they're blown away by what happens, right? And what does Jesus say? Jesus says, does he say, well, what'd you think power was going to do? He didn't say that. Or he didn't say, it's pretty amazing, isn't it? He didn't say that. They're blown away by this power that they've had to cast out demons and Jesus says something very interesting. Luke chapter 10, verse 20. He says, nevertheless, don't rejoice in this. Why are you excited about that? That the spirits are subject to you. But what you ought to rejoice about is because your names are written in heaven. See, Jesus is saying, yeah, that's, that's cool. But what you ought to be rejoicing about 
is that your name's written in the Lamb's book of life. Now that's amazing. You see, instead of clamoring around and seeking after all of these experiences, what we ought to do is be moving and busy and intentional in the kingdom of God, rejoicing all the way regardless of what happens to come our way. Because our name is written in the Lamb's book of life. Amen. I mean. You see. So some, of, some of us in the room. Are. We're journey people. And some of us in the room are destination people. Right? Sure you are. Now. Probably, it's easy to say that, but not exclusively, but typically, the men in the room are going to be the destination people, and the women in the room are going to be the journey people. And all you have to do is get in the car and take a road trip to figure out who's who, right? Yeah. So some of you, I mean, not me, some of y'all are so whacked out that when you get in the car to take a trip, your goal, like if you had a car that had a 500-gallon gas tank, you never stop. You'd drive to Alaska without ever stopping, wouldn't you? Because you're so obsessed with getting to the destination. Lisa, don't say one thing. See, I just want to get there. I'm just going to confess it to you. I'm, I want to get there. Because i got one thing on my mind. I'm here, and I'm trying to get there, right? But there's some other people in the car, and they want to look at all the junk between here and there. And that's messing up my system, because I'm trying to get there. And so we have, a, we have a collision of agendas, right? Now, there's somebody in this room that is going to have this. I mean, you know, I am merciful in some respects. And so I cannot tell you who this person is. But when I was thinking about this, I got so tickled in my study because I was remembering them. I think it might be the craziest thing I've ever heard. Uh, they grew up with, it was all boys in the family, no girls. And their dad was such a destination person that when they went on family vacation, you know, like in the big stationary station wagon with the way back seat that faces backwards, like, what were we thinking? What was that all about? Talk about make somebody sick. You're looking backwards the whole way to Disney World, right? So somehow we got in a conversation about this, and he said his dad was so obsessed that he would try to make them if any, you know, if, when he only stopped when they needed gas, and he would fuss at them if they got anything to drink, you know, like no matter how dehydrated they were going to get or whatever. And so finally he just said, fine, get something to drink. And he wouldn't stop the car, and he put a big old coffee cans in the back of the car. They're in this room right now. That's just nasty. And all I'm thinking about is your poor mom. Like, I get it, Dad and all the brothers, but your mom, like, man, that is rough. So, you know who you are, right? You got destination people and you got journey people. 
Now, God is all about the journey in our lives. You know why? Because the destination has already been accomplished. So God's about the journey of those whose destination is set in stone. And the reason why that is is because he loves those on the journey whose destination is still undetermined. You see? So our destination in Christ is a foregone conclusion. Therefore, God's not obsessing about the destination because it's already done. But what's his agenda? The journey... Because there's still work to do. Because there's still people that he loves whose journey or whose destination is undetermined, right? Yes. And so what we want to do is we want to be a people who read the Bible and who who instead of thinking of all the things we can't do and how impossible everything is and how we would have have biblical eyes to see that you know what? God loves to just turn everything upside down, doesn't he? He loves to do that. He loves to. He loves when his people just begin to trust him in impossible things, motivated by and encouraged by what we've been told about him and his priorities through Scripture, right? So if we know that God loves a a segment of people, if we know that God's agenda is wrapped around a certain demographic or a certain people that meet a certain criteria or some certain activity, if we know that that's high up on the priority scale of God, then if we trust him in impossibilities with regards to that group of people, what do you think he's going to do? He's going to show you And me, how amazing and powerful he is. Won't he? Yes. So what we need to do is be intentional by positioning ourselves to be moving, but not just moving anywhere, not moving where we want to be, but moving where God would have us to be, not standing around saying, God, if you show me, I'll go. No, moving according to what he's already shown you. If you're waiting around for him to show you, you're being disobedient because he's already shown you. Right? But going where he's told us to go, doing what he's told us to do, and believing him in the impossibilities, and watch what he does. And then you begin to reject the notion of the naysayers around you who are always quick to say, well, that's never going to change, or it's just the way it is, or everything's so bad, or you can't overcome this, or you can't. No. Listen. I got news for Fox News. They're on my last nerve right now, if you can't tell. But you cannot profess faith in the God of this Bible and then turn around and say that things are just so bad, so far gone. So that's God's specialty. That's his wheelhouse. Listen. We got people who are paralyzed for eight years. That's pretty far gone. That's pretty hopeless. That's pretty not. And then, boom, they're up walking in an instant. We got dead people. Listen, 
Did you notice something about Tabitha? She gets sick and she dies. Now, you don't have to be a biblical scholar to know what happens to people when they die in the Bible, including Jesus. What's the first thing people, the first thing they do is prepare the body and bury it. How come they didn't bury Tabitha? They washed her and brought her up and put her in the upper room. Why'd they do that? Because they had faith in the impossible. You know why? Because they knew that Peter was around. And so they were waiting in faith that he would come because they believed that God would do it. And here's the thing. What's God's agenda to reach all the people around there, right? And so they're all standing there waiting. And here comes Peter. And boom, she's dead. Now she's alive. So just holler that back at the TV the next time somebody starts talking about how, well, it's just too far gone. No, it isn't. It's never too far gone. Never. God is on the throne. And I think it is, it is offensive to him when people who profess his name get this sky is falling mentality. The sky's not falling. And like I said earlier, if it is, it's because God wants it to. And we ought to be rejoicing in that. There's work to do. Supernatural work to do. Intentionally position yourself. To be doing the things that you know represent the heart of God. And I will guarantee you that He will put opportunities on your doorstep that you never dreamed of. Because that's his agenda. That's his plan. That's his purpose. The destination is already done. It's done. So what's, what would hinder us? Nothing's impossible for God. Nothing. See, now I feel like we're ready to celebrate the resurrection next Sunday. Amen. Let's stand. Bow our heads.